and through this world. And we come to this very important chapter of redemptive history where God has, has for the first time, gathered to himself a, a nation that belongs to him as his own special people. God created the whole world, and then in its fall, he singled out Noah, who he would save from the flood, but every other family perished. And, and then from them later, it was generations past before God picks one man, Abraham, and promises him generations and descendants that would become a nation that God would own and that God would use to bring about his salvation. And so we're, we're hundreds of years down the track now, and God has saved this nation, a special nation to himself in the world. He has saved them out of slavery to Egypt. He has saved them from perils in the desert and the wilderness. He has saved them through the Red Sea, and he now brings them, he brings them to the mountain of God where God decided to meet with his people in a very special, very visible, very audible, a sensory overload, if you will, at Mount Sinai. This is where God comes down on the mountain and he speaks out of the flaming, uh, thunderous, trumpeting cloud to speak to his people and reveal to them as a nation under God the laws by which he requires them to live day in and day out. This is what we call the Ten Commandments. And I ask you to look at chapter 20 of Exodus now. God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Third commandment, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Today's commandment, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or, the so or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. May God bless his own divine word in our midst this morning. This commandment is a command to keep the Sabbath holy. We have seen that God cares who we worship. So the first commandment says only worship him. We see that God cares how he is worshipped. And so he commands us only to worship by faith according to his word, not through images and idols. He cares what spirit his religion or his covenants or his, his name is taken in. And so he commands for there to be no blasphemy in word or in hypocrisy or in mind, as we are called his people, not to blaspheme. But today's commandment is a command about when we worship. This is, this is 
if it's the top 10 out of all of God's commandments that reveal to us his own heart, I think some of us, if we were honest, would admit that the day on which we worship doesn't seem like one of the top 10 things that the world needs to hear. But this is why God has to speak from a mountain through fire and trumpets to us, because our wisdom is not of God's wisdom. Our laws and our righteousness and our deeds that we think are good are not equivalent to the divine, triune, holy God. So he speaks this, and it is a powerful, authoritative word. We've said, as we come to study the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments are not a curse to us. They are a blessing for us because they are a revelation of God's own heart. We call this the moral law. It's something that reveals something true about God, not just something that he's doing for a certain time in history like circumcision or or animal sacrifices. Those were temporary. When we study the Ten Commandments, we're studying the moral law of God, these things that speak to something deeply true about God's own morals and ethics and righteousness in himself. So we've asked as we study each commandment every week, what does this law reveal about God who speaks the law? And then we've been asking the question, as people sanctified to be obedient to God, how do we obey this law? How does it actually apply to us in our everyday? And then thirdly, we ask the question, since none is made righteous by the obedience to this law, and every mouth is stopped and shown a sinner after this law, and therefore none of us can come into heaven because we have obeyed this law, how does Jesus save us from the condemnation of this law? These have been our threefold questions as we study the passage, uh, the, the laws and the commandments of God in the Ten Commandments. So, the first thing, how does the, what does this law reveal about God? Firstly, it is that we have a loving God. I wonder if that's the first thing you think of when you read this overly strict and, and meticulous and, and legalistic law that God speaks to us. You have to rest a day and worship a day and set it aside. Do you realize that this is, in fact, an act of God's love? God knows us. He knows, the psalmist says, he knows that we are dust because that's what he makes us out of. He knows that we die eventually and that we're weak and we have needs and failures. He knows us and as a good fatherly God, he gives to us what we need. He knows that without worship, regular worship, we will all, every one of us, forget the promises of God. He knows that without a set-apart time to rest, we will work ourselves ragged, eating the bread of anxious toil, and never have that healthy cycle and rhythm in our life. And so he commands rest. And he knows that without, <coughs> without a day set aside for, holy pattern, uh, for worship and rest, we will not have pattern and structure, but rather descend into chaos, because God knows how he made us. Because God loves us, he inscribes into his own law a rest and worship day for the people of God for our good. Our God is a loving God and the law is good and holy and righteous. The second thing this reveals about God is that he is a God who meets with his people. He is a God that delights to and in fact commands that we come to meet with him as he meets with his people. Welcome to the gathering of God, by God, for God's people. This is what this is. We did not come together today as a human gathering to remember God. 
to think about God and hope that in his busyness he might even sprinkle some blessings to us because we gathered and we came up with this good idea. We're all in one place, God. We've made it efficient. Just come down quickly, help us out and go back. This is not a human gathering where we consider things about God. This is actually from the divine scripture, God's idea that he commands us to gather. He invites us and calls us to gather. And then he comes by the power of his Holy Spirit to meet with us and minister to us that as we read the word, there is God's own voice in our midst. What a terrible thing it is to live your life growing up without the voice of your father in your ear. Many do. Christians do not need to be like that with our loving God. He speaks to us frequently, powerfully, on, in every manner of things through that word. Or as we sing, he says that he comes and inhabits our praises. Don't take it too literally. It means that he loves and he descends to bless us as we praise him. In the, in the communion, Lord's Supper and baptism, he, he ministers to us and shows our souls something true about the gospel. In the preaching of the word, he, he carves off sin from our hearts and he encourages us and builds us up and puts us back together after a week of labor, sin, and stress. This God loves to meet with us. He's been doing it since the beginning. Even in the Garden of Eden, God would, you might say they didn't have church back then. I would beg to differ. I think the gathering of God to his people can be called a, a worship corporate gathering of church, if you will. And even there we see in the language of Genesis that God came down at a set time, the cool of the day, as he was, as he was wont to do. He met with his people in the garden. He went away and let them enjoy and labor, and he came back to them. Even after the fall, we, we see many, many millennia where people would be offering sacrifices, but, but, but very infra- God did not sanctify to himself a people. But in the gathering of, of, of the Israelites, God started in the wilderness to gather them together on the Sabbaths and have what Numbers calls a holy convocation. Not what we're going to start calling our gathering, but, but a holy convocation was a set-apart time where all of the nation would gather and worship God and hear from him and do as he commanded. A holy convocation. In other words, corporate worship. And then when they settle in Israel, the land, and they build the temple, God comes and meets with them frequently and regularly on the weekly, monthly, annual festivals and worship days, the Sabbaths. And, and then Jesus reiterated that. That wasn't just Old Testament, not necessary when Jesus was here. Jesus went to church. Every single Sabbath, Jesus came in and he went to church because he obeyed God's laws. Every Sabbath he would be in synagogue. And as an adult, as a traveling rabbi, we actually see that he partook in the synagogue corporate worship by often giving sermons there. And then, even in Jesus leaving, we then see the New Testament church right down to our own day. Right here, God is a God who loves and commands to meet with his people. That's what heaven, that's what glory beyond heaven is going to be. The eternal Sabbath where God's people are gathered to himself without distraction, without sin, without enemies to put under his feet. And we are gathered to God's presence. God is a God who will not do without meeting with his people. And thirdly, in this commandment, we see that God is a God who is sovereign. Look at verse 11 of this passage before us today. We see the commandment in verse 8, 9, 
and 10. And then we see the reason for this commandment in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. In other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever color you are, culture you are, background you are, as long as you live and breathe in this world, God made you. He made everything. He's your God. He gets to tell you what to do. That, that's it. When he says, I made it all, he's saying, you're on my property. Wherever you go, you're in my house and you abide by my rules. That's what God's saying. So, so Jew, Gentile, Christian, never heard the word of God, whatever. It is clear from creation that God ought to be worshipped as he desires to be worshipped. We'll talk about that a little more in a moment. But here it is. God is sovereign. He made it all. You obey him. But then he goes on to say, continuing the theme of his sovereignty, I, I want to show you that, that the idea of him resting continues the idea of his sovereignty. For in six days he created heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What we should see when we look at Genesis 2 and we see God creating the world and Genesis 1 and, and then it gets to this part where it says on the seventh day God ceased from his labor and sanctified it as a, as a holy Sabbath day for on that day he rested. We should not think hard work, hard work, strenuous activity, God needing break. You guys do it too. Don't outwork dad. It's embarrassing for him. So if he gets tired, you need to take a rest too. Not, 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 not what happened. God didn't rest out of tiredness and fatigue. Neither should we see that he worked and worked and worked and then retired. A kind of semi-deism where God finished his labor and then went to heaven to the eternal Florida and kicks back and doesn't do anything anymore. Not the case. He continues to be intricately, meticulously involved with his creation as he sees it move moment by moment, being held together by the word of his own power. What we should see when God labored and then rested, and this is picked up in the Psalms and the prophets, is that God considers his building of the universe, unfallen without sin, as him building his own temple. And then he creates a little high priest named Adam and puts him in a special, localized, uh, beautiful temple garden called Eden. And so when God stops working, what he's doing in the Hebrew idea of things, in the Old Testament view of things, is that he then sits on his throne and puts his feet up. He's ruling. That's what his Sabbath rest means. Just like Solomon, who built the temple uh, and built the temple for God, and then God indwelt it and rested in that place, or just as Solomon built his own palace, and then what does he do when the king's palace is finished? He walks on in. He sits on down, he reclines as ruling sovereign. The fact that God rests over this creation, and the Psalms tell us that, that the earth is God's footstool. He created it to be under his feet as a sign of his sovereignty that he rules over us. That is what we see in verse 11. God created everything, and God now sits as reigning Lord over everything, and therefore, the rest of the Sabbath day recognizes that. It follows his pattern because he rested. It recognizes that he is the Lord who can command us and created everything and rested. But also it is a reminder that he is currently ruling and we require set-apart time to remember that because we're apt to get confused and think we run this show. This is what it reveals about God. He is a God who, meets, who loves us and knows what we need. 
who loves to meet with his people, and who is the ruling sovereign. We ask the question now, what does this fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, what does it command? But before we get there, we actually need to ask the question, does it command anything? There are many theologians and scholars, some I respect, uh, uh, maybe, maybe some budding or wishful theologians even sitting among us who, 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 who disagree that this has any binding effect on us now. They would say that, of course, to Israel as a, as, a, as a holy day, the seventh day to be set apart, that was binding on them, but not before them and not after them. So that in Jesus' coming, the Sabbath day just turns into a wisdom principle of take a break, have a Kit Kat, chill out. Uh, or, or that we, we sanctify the Sabbath merely by going to church. As long as you do that, that's honoring the Lord's day. Some will even, even draw blood over the question of should we call it the Christian Sabbath? Or is that, a, is that a hijacking of Old Testament Jewish language that we should leave to them and rather we ought only to call it the Lord's Day? There's, there's many debates around this. I want to argue that whether we call it Sabbath, Lord's Day, Sunday even, if you're feeling a little bit Romanistic, whatever we call it, yes, the fourth commandment found in this list of ten is still binding on us today as Christians. We see this, first of all, because as we said before, this commandment is a part of the ten revealed by God as the moral law. Theologians distinguish the three categories of Old Testament law and say there's the ceremonial, what to drink, what to dress up as, what, to, what smokes to use and what smells to have in the ceremony and sacrifices to make. and the, All of that stuff, so key to Old Testament worship, done away with. That was ceremonial, done away with, fulfilled in Jesus then there was the civil law, how the nation of Israel was to punish laws and execute wars and do all those sorts of things. How is that to happen? Now uh, uh, relegated since there is no longer a geopolitical God's nation. But this moral law, the theologians say, summed up in the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God are pictures of his own righteousness that will never change and can never change because God doesn't ever change. And therefore, it is binding, every part of the Ten Commandments, including the Sabbath, is binding from the moment God created the world until God wraps it up, these laws are in fact binding on all humans of all flesh. We've seen in Exodus 20 verse 11, and we see in Exodus 1 and 2, that the grounding of the Sabbath commandment is not merely in the salvation of Israel from Egypt. He doesn't just say, have a Sabbath day because peculiar and particular to you, O Israel, I saved you from Egypt, so now rest, you're not in slavery. He doesn't say that. He goes right back, not just to Israel's nation, but to the beginning of every nation, the beginning of the human race and all creation, and says, I set in a pattern from the very beginning. So as long as you descend from Adam, as long as your great-great-great-granddaddy was in the Garden of Eden, which is all of us, we are all bound under this law. That on the sixth day, God finished his work, and on the seventh, he rested, and so ought we. We see that this commandment was already in play before the Ten Commandments. Remember when God was uh, ascending manna among them, back in Exodus chapter 16? And, and as he sent bread, they were commanded to sanctify the Sabbath day and not do work on it, don't go out and get your bread. And that was already binding on them in uh, chapters and months before the Ten Commandments were given. 
Then we see that it is, of course, not just a creation and before the, the Ten Commandments, but of course here in the Ten Commandments. And then it is confirmed in the life of Jesus that he honored and obeyed the Sabbath commandment. Uh, of course, he loved to poke the eye of all the hyper-religious people that thought they were more holy than God and loved to make life hard for the widows and the poor and the, 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 the souls that were seeking God on Sabbath. They loved to make life hard for them by all of their ridiculous, meticulous teachings about what you could and couldn't do, laws about what you could and couldn't lift. And if you lift something of a certain poundage, you were only allowed to put it down on a lower shelf. If you were to lift something of a different poundage, you could take so many steps according to your stride and stature and then put it down on a certain shelf. Did you know that these are the laws? That it was so ridiculously meticulous that it made the Sabbath worship of God hell. That you would wake up today and think, oh my, I've probably already broken it. I've probably thought too hard about the Sabbath. I'm done. I'm judged already. And, and we want to go worship, but how, many, how big should my steps be? How, how many breaths should I take? Can I, can I relax? Can I rest? Can I worship? God? Probably not. I'm probably doing it all wrong. So it had become a curse. And Jesus loved in his earthly ministry to push back against those ridiculous commandments of men and honor the Sabbath as good for mankind, as a blessing to people, as a great opportunity to, go, to do good works and service to other people and to worship God in freedom and in liberty, but then it was also reapplied by the example of the apostles. So we see the ten, the, the ten Commandments as a whole, but specifically today, the Sabbath commandment in place since creation till after the coming of Jesus. This is a moral, all-encompassing commandment. Jesus said in his earthly ministry, arguing with those detractors who thought that he was doing work on the Sabbath because he just spoke a word and healed somebody. Not work. And if it is work, it's good work, fit for the Sabbath, Jesus was saying. But he said, in then and other uh, 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 situations, he said the Sabbath was made for mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath. In other words, he was teaching that the Sabbath was good. It was a gift. It was for the rest and rejuvenation of body and soul for God's people. But isn't it interesting that he doesn't just say the Sabbath was made for Jew, not Jew for the Sabbath. He says the Sabbath was made for mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath. Jesus sees this general, all-encompassing, to all people everywhere, binding gift that God gives to actually honor the Sabbath. Now, I know we might think, how in the world would the tribesmen or the Australian before the Europeans got here, or, the, or the, 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 the Babylonians, how would any of these people, without the written revelation of God, know to gather on a certain day? The answer is they wouldn't. This is what theologians call general revelation, special revelation. General revelation are things that you can just pick up from creation. God put his nature, his truth, into creation. Not everything about him, but much. And so by looking at creation, it is evident, it is evident unless you've been schooled by fools to conclude somebody made everything. That, that's 101 logic unless you've been trained by the guys who needed a degree to get that stupid. It is evident somebody made this. Didn't pop, right? didn't just fizzle into existence. But that being the case, being Lord and God over the creation, it is then also evident that he deserves worship. And it is also evident, of course, just logically, that if he deserves my worship, then he deserves all your worship. So we should be doing that together. He didn't just make me, he made us. 
that he's worthy of corporate worship. And of course, by the simple nature of how God designed the world, time, location, we need a set of time and a location in order to have corporate worship. So, so God exists. He deserves worship in a gathered assembly at a regular time. Which day? That's where general revelation stops. Which day, the tribesmen or, the, or, the, or the, the unreached people group might ask, which day should we gather to worship this one true holy God? And of course, they, they don't know. They, they might honor the conscience within them by gathering at certain times. And of course, it'll always be sinful and idolatrous worship. We know that. We're not saying this saves them. But it is binding on everyone's conscience. But what it is, is the Bible. It's special revelation from when God spoke first to, Abra- to Adam. When God spoke to Moses about the writing of the Pentateuch. It's God's special revelation, the Bible, that tells us which day they were to sanctify as the Sabbath before Jesus, and which tells Christians which day we are to sanctify as his day after Jesus' coming. So this is a moral law that is in creation. However, we need God's special revelation, his redemptive word in the Bible, to tell us which day we should be meeting. And what we see is that in the ministry the finished work of the gospel of Jesus, the Sabbath day principle does not change, but the Sabbath day celebration, the weekly time that we should be doing, it does change. I think this is probably one of the most confusing parts of the Sabbath commandment and what looks like a real weak point, right? We go, Pastor, you're trying to say that the fourth commandment doesn't change. It's eternal. It's a part of God's nature. It's binding. It's moral. It's eternal and perpetual. And then Jesus comes and changes it. I don't think we make that commandment about do not murder. I don't think we make that commandment about do not commit adultery, that it's technically binding, but it changes. How does it change and, and, not, and not, not entirely become eradicated? The principle is, in reality, that what is moral to this commandment, what is eternal and perpetual, is that God demands a set-apart time for corporate worship. We've seen that. However, what is able to change, or what theologians call positive law, that is, this, 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 this sort of dressing up of this essential law might change covenant to covenant. It might change. If, if God was to create not this world, but a different world, he might have commanded everybody to worship on the third day. And that, that is still an honoring of that moral part of God's heart, the Sabbath, but the day may change in a different creation, right? A different creation may have within it a different day of worship, and still honor the Sabbath principle, or the different covenant. If God was to make with mankind a different covenant, then it would be fitting that since the Sabbath was tied to the seventh day in the Old Covenant, Adam to Moses to to the end of the Old Testament, then it would make sense that if there was a new covenant, there could be a new Sabbath day. And friends, that is just exactly what we have in the coming of Jesus and his finished work on the cross and resurrection. Do you know what we have? We have a new covenant, a new promise of God to man, a new set of relationships and laws and ways of worshipping that all mankind might place their faith in Jesus and be forgiven if they hear the preaching of the gospel and gather in churches. So this new covenant, you bet it might make sense to have a new Sabbath day. But what about the new creation? Isn't that exactly what we have in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning of a new creation, that since the seventh day was tied to the old creation, he made it, then rested, 
So also we might think of, until we're in a new creation, that's the binding seventh-day Sabbath. And I say, exactly, welcome, though, to the new creation for all those that are in Jesus Christ. We're in a new creation. In fact, it makes a lot of sense to expect, then, a new day of setting aside for Sabbath. And that's what happens in the ministry of Jesus and in the preaching of the apostles. We see that Sabbath principle not eradicated, but shifted from the Saturday or seventh-day Sabbath to the first day of the week that the Christians called the Lord's Day in the Apostles' time and in the coming generations and centuries after them. So the moral essence of the law does not change. However, the day that this Sabbath is to be celebrated and sanctified has changed. And, and, and we can argue that it, it shifted to the first day of the week that you might want to call the Christian day of worship, the, the Christian Sabbath, if you will, or more frequently that I love, the Lord's Day, the day that Jesus owns and stamped as his own. We see him doing this because he was resurrected to ratify the new creation, to accomplish the new direct, the redemption, and to establish the new covenant on a Sunday. On the first day of the week, Jesus rose and made it his day. The Lord's day, he rose that day. He didn't wait till the next Sabbath. He rose on the Sunday and then met with his disciples on the Sunday. Then what did he do? He disappeared from them for a time and came back when? The next Sunday. The next first day of the week, he met with them and taught to them. And, and more than that, more than just the fact that he rose on that day and he met them on that day, but even more, he does sacrament with them on that day. This, I think, is a, is a strong argument that we must all recognize. Jesus, in the upper room, the night before he was betrayed, he established the Lord's Supper. Remember that scene? He's celebrating one of the highest and holiest sacraments of the Old Testament. And he has the audacity to say, it's all about me, and I'm changing it. Don't remember Passover anymore, not your salvation. Don't remember the Israel redemption. Of course, remember God's good works, even as Christians we remember it. But the meal now is pointing to me. Don't do this in remembrance of Moses and Exodus. Do this in remembrance of me. He, he changes a holy Sabbath ceremony, makes it about him, and tells them to do it to remember him. And then when does he turn up to do it with them? On the Sundays. He appears with them on the Lord's Day and not on a Sabbath to do the breaking of the bread with them. He's obeying his own commandment for people in the new creation to gather and do sacrament on the first day of the week. He establishes that day as the principle and pattern so that in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, we see that the corporate gathering of the church where they were giving their offerings was happening on the first day of the week. We see that in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, under the ministry of Paul, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Right, you've got, you got communion, you've got gathering, you've got Paul preaching. What do you have? You've got church. You've got Sabbath worship now, or the Lord's Day being celebrated on the first day of the week, Sunday. So whether you call it Christian Sabbath or Lord's Day, the commandment is sanctify it. Set it aside. Devoted to the Lord, and the next question becomes, how? How do we do that? Maybe you had an uncle, 50 steps, that's it. Never go to Macca's on a Sunday, suit and tie, all day, 12 a.m. till 12 a.m. That's the rule. 
maybe how do we sanctify this and not, not be like the Amish or not, how do we do this properly? I want to obey the law of God. I, I feel that burn in your hearts. Here is how. First of all, the way that we sanctify the gathered worship as God has always commanded, uh, sorry, the sanctify the Sabbath day as God has always commanded is through gathered worship. Gathered worship. Or what we call corporate worship. Because Christ is worthy, he is worthy of corporate worship. The reason that we gather on the Lord's Day instead of just doing individual or family devotions at home is because just as God was worthy of a general corporate worship to him because he'd redeemed the corporate Israel out of Egypt, how much more then is Jesus Christ worthy of us coming together, being gathered corporately to worship him because he redeemed all of us corporately from the bondage of sin and death. God demanded corporate worship, so also Christ is worthy of corporate worship. Corporate salvation into the family, the body, the household of God in the church demands corporate worship of the church. And so we do, we do as we are commanded. In the Bible, we're told to read his word, sing his praises, pray to him, baptize and do the Lord's Supper, preach the Bible and remember his gospel. That's what we ought to do every Sunday unless the Lord somehow, you know, there's this difference in saying a mate once who had lived some time in Africa and part of Muslim Africa and he had taken his car car troubles and he took his car to the mechanic and he said to the guy Muslim fella great mechanic he said in the best language that they were speaking I don't know that he could he said this needs to be done by Thursday now I have a very important church trip Friday this needs to be fixed by Thursday and the guy said to him yes 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 Lord willing it will be done yeah, and you chuckle like I chuckle, like he chuckled and groaned, because we're Western. Lord willing means, eh, if he makes it happen, I'm sure it'll happen. But if not, how can I be blamed for the decisions of the Holy One are up to him? If it happens, it happens, Lord willing. And so he said to him, no, not Lord willing. You do it. Lord willing, that, 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 that's what this contract, that's what me giving you money means. You do it. And the guy had to correct him, and he said, oh, no, 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 no. In our language... To say Lord willing means it will be done unless God stops me. In Western language, we say Lord willing meaning it won't be done unless God does it. Right? When I say we must all be at church every Sunday, of course we think, hey, hey, what about the, 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 the infirm? What about when I'm in hospital? What, what about when, when there's a birth to be had? I mean, come on, l- 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 calm down. No, no, no. No, you calm down and back off the Lord's Sabbath day. Because, because when our first reaction is, hold up, let's make exceptions, what it's actually revealing is an internal, I also need to play soccer. UFC isn't on Saturdays in Australia. There's lots of exceptions that I want to shove through the tiny little loophole. So instead we say, Lord willing, Lest he stops me, I will be with his gathered people. Sometimes the weather is not nice enough to get to church. Sometimes the weather is too nice to waste time at church. We've got to go fishing. We need to be those who are committed as a matter of law that unless God intervenes and stops me, I'm going to be at the Lord's house on the Lord's day because he commands it. Of course there are exceptions. We, we, we get infirm. There are business trips that pull us away. There are family emergencies. But the order, 
the, the norm, the law needs to be written in our hearts. We love the Lord's day and we love to gather. And when I don't love it, I'll still gather because it's the Lord's law. So gathered worship as a weekly reminder. Let it be your highest joy, the best day of the week. Speak of it that way. How, how the devil gets into this to, to, to degrade the law of God and the worship of God just in the little things, the, the groaning about Sunday, the, the deep sighs about having to get up to, I know kids, but we got to get there. You know, dad signed himself up to a roster. We got to be there. How, how often we just denigrate the worship of God by, by sighing and considering it a burden. Think rather of it as a joy. Speak of it as a joy. The Sabbath, Thomas Watson said, the Sabbath is the festival day for the soul. It's a market day for the soul. When we come and we have everything we need stocked up in our heart to live another day, week for the Lord, let it be the priority. Just as the sun to the solar system orders everything, let the Lord's day be the priority that other things have to fit around. Don't go to church when there's not a birthday party. Don't go to church if the tide is out and not advantageous. Don't go to church if there's not sports on. Prioritize the, the gathering of God's people as the sun in the solar system and just watch and experience it as it emits light and warmth and life into your spiritual life. Secondly, the way we honor this is that we rest from labors because Christ is trustworthy of our rest. God says, and in fact, it's actually a part of this commandment. He doesn't just say, sanctify the Lord's day, the, the seventh day. He also says, work the other six. How often is this missed in our day? Young guys living at home, not working, families not working, doing what they can. The government gives good handouts. We don't work. We therefore cannot Sabbath. You can't rest from labors if you're not working hard. Let it be said that Christians must have a hard, spiritually in, in empowered work ethic. Thomas Watson, again, he said that the pilots of the old grand ships in the ocean, they do navigate by the stars. He says, a pilot's eye is always on heaven, but his hands are always on the helm. That's what Christians are like. Of course, we're heavenly minded. Of course, we're thinking of spiritual, eternal, good things. And yet, our hands are on this earth to build good fruit, to establish legacies, and to serve other people. We must work hard. However, then, on the Sabbath, we give it over to a resting from our ordinary work. The Sunday should be the day when all of the ordinary work, the assignments, the marking assignments, the, the business emails, the Zoom calls, the, the working, the, that all of those things to make money or to, to just alleviate work on the other six days need to stop. And that, now, we don't go over the top and re, uh, religiously legalistic with this as if, as if to ignore the Reformed tradition. They usually say the two exceptions. The exceptions to to uh, uh, resting from your labor is what Jesus showed us in his earthly ministry. There's acts of mercy, keep doing them. Don't not change your ch children's nappy because it's the holy day. <laughs> Don't not cook for your family. Gentlemen, it's okay to barbecue on the Sabbath. You've got to eat. Uh, don't, don't not clean up a mess. Don't pick up an old lady that's fallen. Don't fail to change a, an enemy's tire if they're broken down on the highway. Do those things. Those are acts of mercy that, that are a great thing to be done on God's day of merciful love. Of course. 
And then there's the works of necessity. You've got to get dressed. You've got to drive. You've got to cook. You've got to uh, do certain things. Uh, if you're going to sit on these chairs, you, someone's got to get here and set them up. If you're going to hear the word, I've got to get up and yell about it. If we're going to do these things, some, there is necessary work, but it also applies to, to certain uh, employments. You don't want the military to take a day off. Huh? You don't want the doctors to all take a day off. No emergency rooms on Sunday. You don't want nurses to stop caring for the elderly or the sick or the infirm or the ICU patients on a Sunday. So, of course, there will be exceptions where the works of necessity must go on. And sometimes Christians or emergency responders, in that case, will need to be, to be on call and able to do that work. But the general principle is that we seek to rest. Amos 8 rebukes in verse 5, those who see the Lord's Sabbath as a limitation to my money-making. Amos 8 verse 5, you say, when will the new moon holiday be over so that we may go and sell grain? When will the Sabbath end so that we may offer wheat for sale? God wants us to delight in resting from labor because Jesus, believe it or not, he's got it under control. If you're working too much to take a Sabbath, you're working too much. If you're too disorganized to take a Sabbath, you're too disorganized. If you cannot leave the running of the world and your little empire a day to worship God, then you need to hand over your empire to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can trust him with resting. God is trustworthy of our rest. And thirdly, we obey this, and this is the deepest and truest sense, and it also answers the third question we ask of every law. How does Jesus redeem us from the sins against this law? Every single one of us has broken the spirit and the substance of the Sabbath law in the past and today. Not a single one of us. I don't know how many Puritan books you read last night in preparation for today and what a good practice that is. I don't know how many hundreds of times you read the New Testament just this morning to be ready for worship. Maybe you did. Bless you. Even if no one has to the infinite and ultimate sense sanctified the Lord's gathering and thought rightly about worshipping him and resting from labors to the degree that the law commands. So, so we're freeing ourselves up now to remember this is not a competition for who's obeyed this the best. This is not a, a question from God, are you worthy? No, this is a time for us to confess as Romans 3 says, the law condemns me. I'm a sinner against this law and every law. God is gracious and still receives my acts of obedience, though fallen that they are, because they are in Christ. Uh, John Owen used to say, you can never repent of a sin that isn't forgiven. You can never mortify or change a sin that is not forgiven. So if you're not forgiven yet, don't start trying to renovate your life. You have to be forgiven of all your sin first, then you can seek about how to obey God and do the righteous things. This is the deeper and truest essence. The ultimate sense of the Sabbath law is that it points to Christ's new creation. Remember the, the first Sabbath, the Saturday, it pointed to the finished work of God's creation and his sovereign rule. The New Testament Sabbath, the Lord's Day, the Christian day of worship, points to Jesus' new creation, his new kingdom and covenant, and it speaks, just as 
The Israelites were to remember their redemption from Egypt. The Sabbath of Jesus, the Lord's Day, recalls and remembers and points to his redemption and forgiveness from sin that he accomplished. We rest, therefore, from our labor, in part, as we give up our worldly employments on a Sunday, in part, what we're remembering is, I also don't have to work or labor to impress or make God pleased with me. Don't have to do it. I can come in today with no works in my account that God can look and assess and say, this this is perfect. No one of us has a single ounce of gold, of pure, acceptable obedience in our account for God to be pleased with us. No one. We come into God's presence to be reminded on the Sabbath day, to look back on the accomplished work of Jesus Christ and remember I have nothing acceptable to offer without Jesus Christ. I have nothing righteous to show God outside of Jesus Christ. We rest, therefore, from our labor of self-righteousness. This is human nature. We hear a law and think, I can do that. It's all good. I'll do it, God. I'll make myself better. I know I've failed in the past, but I'll suffer and I'll white-knuckle it and I'll beat myself up and I'll feel bad and then I'll be good and, and you'll love me, God. I'm sure you will. I'll be good enough. And God says, rest. I command you to stop trying. I forbid you to try and work hard enough to make me happy. You will fail every day of your life and be thrown into hell if that is your mindset. But if you come to God in the name of Jesus Christ and say, I cease, I rest, I stop from trying to work hard enough, trying to be good enough, and I throw myself on the finished work of Jesus. The finished work of Christ is like a mattress that we lay on and God gives us the blessings. It's like a seat that we we sit on, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We sit on that and God serves up to us the feasting table of his blessings, forgiveness of sins and adoption into his family. Jesus said in his earthly life, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Some of you are working to be righteous and acceptable to God. Some of you are working hard to run from the idea of God and bury your conscience under lies. Some of you are working hard to try and pretend or imagine or live for a life that is going to be better once you just get over this horizon or around this corner. You're working and laboring for that which is going to be moldy, decaying bread once you get it. You cannot work for that which God gives as a gift, which is forgiveness, eternal life, love, and being accepted into God's family. That comes only because Jesus lived the righteous and perfect life. He labored, it says in the New Testament, under the law. He carried every single commandment of God's law and each day of his life was another step in absolute perfection. But he did the laboring, the suffering, the full obedience under the law in our place for our sake and gives his righteousness as a gift. 
He went to the cross, and then instead of bearing the, 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 the commands of the law, he then weighed, was weighed down with and, and, and carried our sins against the law and God's wrath against our sins, and God's displeasure, and his hatred, and his anger. Jesus bore it all and was buried into death. He was buried to show that he had completely paid the life needed to pay for our sins, but he was resurrected to show that the payment was accepted, the payment was perfect, and the payment was effective. Therefore, I command every person here with the authority of God, if You live and breathe, and as you live and breathe, rest on, trust in Jesus Christ as the only one whose work can get you to heaven. That is God's promise in the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we worship a dear and loving Father who who condescends to us to speak to us, who, though you are holy and majestic, and infinite, you, you speak in our language. You speak to us through pictures and words in the Bible and scenes of glory. And, and we thank you that in all your grandeur, you have given to us this gift of your law that leads us in wisdom like a beautiful, bright lamp in this dark world. Father God, what a confusing thing it is to some of us. What a new thing for some of us. What a wonderful thing it is that you inscribe into your law the worship of your people to you so that you can meet with us, restore us, refresh us, and renew us week by week. Father God, we are are apt to overwork forgetting your finished work. We are apt to work anxiously forgetting your sovereignty. We are apt to to be lazy forgetting that you're a working God. I pray, Lord God, that, that before we obey the law to its letter, we would obey the Lord's spirit and delight in it in our hearts. There would be a people that rest beyond everything else in Jesus' finished work. The fact that we must bring nothing to you to satisfy you. May you give even in this moment for anxious, laboring, striving Christians who feel at the end of their rope. Would you give to them now this, in this moment, Lord, a, a breath of fresh spiritual air to their souls that allows them to rest in Jesus, his work and his sovereignty. I pray also, Lord God, that you would help us to be a people that seek to honor the Sabbath day, not judging others for how they do it in particulars, but that each one of us would set for us and our families patterns and ways that we can set apart the Sunday as a day where we don't do ordinary things. Set apart the Sunday where we celebrate with you and your people in all manner of ways and get to the worship of God. But God, I pray that this Sabbath meeting would be one of blessing and rejuvenation for everybody that has gathered, especially those who have come in without the banner of Christ's love over them. Those who have come in as unbelievers, who are not Christians, who are guilty in their sin and feel the condemnation of their unrighteousness. God, would you speak to them a good word of promise today? Would you bring them into Jesus Christ and give them faith? Would you enable them to believe that everything Jesus did, he did for them to save their souls and today they may receive that. Father God, we pray all of this in the name of our Lord, our God, our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said... This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, 
visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.